головой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И прибитие их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. This week's podcast is a live interview I did with Matthias Neumann to kick off a series I organized, We Shall Refashion Life on Earth, Youth in Eurasia and Beyond, in the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. As a way to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Communist Youth League in Soviet Russia, this series will examine the rise of the cult of youth in Eurasia and the ways young people represented the hopes and anxieties for the health of the nation-state and served as crucial political and cultural objects and subjects throughout the 20th century. The following interview deals with communism, youth, and generation. Matthias Neumann is a senior lecturer in modern Russian history at the University of East Anglia. He has published widely on the history of childhood and youth in revolutionary Russia. He's the author of The Communist Youth League and the Transformation of the Soviet Union, 1917-1932, to which has been translated into Spanish and will be published in South America in spring 2019. He's also the co-editor of Rethinking the Russian Revolution as Historical Divide, Tradition, Rupture, and Modernity, published by Rutledge. Here's Matthias Neumann. So I thought by, by just to start our conversation, um, to talk about, you know, youth as a political object and agent arose really in the late 19th and early 20th century. So I thought we'd start by talking about what accounts for the rise and the development of this new social category. Yeah, um, I mean, young people have, of course, always been a historical agent. Um, they've always been around. Uh, and historically, when we think about historical developments, young people have often been at the forefront where rebellions occur, where protest erupts, where revolutions break out, and of course, where wars are fought. You know, it's usually young people that fight the wars in this world. So I think it shouldn't really surprise us that it was in the age of revolutions, starting with the French Revolution, uh, that young people and youth took, you know, entered the, st the stage as a much more visible political agent and also object. Uh, when we think about the uh, revolutionary nationalist movements of the 19th century. They really tried to mobilize young people, young intellectuals in particular, and they, they used the banner of youth to, um, to um, um, you know, in the pursuit of achieving this uh, national unification and the creations of independent states, we have organizations that are called Young Italy, Young Germany, Young Poland. And uh, the leader of Young uh, Italy, Giuseppe Mazzini, um, he, he, he stated, you know, youth lives on movement. And I think he captured it very nicely. He also said we need to place the youth at the head of the insurgent masses. So this is one aspect why young people become a much more visible social category in the 19th century. But this is, of course, underlined by a much bigger or broader socioeconomic development, which is the rise of capitalism. Uh, we see various processes of modernization, industrialization and urbanization, which lead to what has been called the discovery of youth. Uh, in particular, important here is the emergence of uh, youth worker culture in, 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 uh, across Europe, in various countries of Europe. So we have young people essentially leaving school at a very early age, 12, 14, depending on, of course, on the national context. They enter work life and Entering work is here seen as the lower threshold of youth, which is very different how we would see youth these days. But they also settle down much later. So they get married and uh, have children in their late, mid-late 20s. And that creates really this, this time out 
um, where these young people have essentially most, if not all, the biological and intellectual capacities of adulthood, but they are free of the responsibilities of it. And of course, the emergence of this youth working class um, vis very visible uh, group of people created or produced a lot of anxiety in society, uh, particularly, of course, amongst the upper class. And uh, we see concerns about juvenile delinquency and deviance. And it's no coincidence that the first modern moral panic really occurred at the end of the 19th century, uh, which, we, which was linked to the, to the rise of the hooligan. And that was a pan-European phenomenon. I mean, there were press reports about hooligans, uh, about this phenomenon in, in Britain, in France, as well as in Russia. So by the end of the century, really young people had emerged as a very distinctive group, social group in society. And depending on your, I guess, political leanings, you either saw them as troublemakers or troubled. You know, one of the things you said, you mentioned in this idea that these movements are describing themselves as young Italy, for example, from Mazzini, um, is the also the understanding amongst these people, amongst so-called young people, but also adults of a sense of generation and the way that generation figures in the politics of youth, recognizing themselves that they're a distinct age cohort from the adults and that youth itself has a certain energy about it. Um, how did generation figure more broadly into the politics of youth in this period? I think it, it figured into immensely. Um, it's Once again, we have to think about uh, the wider process of the rise of capitalism here. The pace of change really accelerates in the 19th century. And that means that young people have a very different experience um, compared to their fathers. And a broader theme, of course, in European culture in the 19th century is that of sons against fathers. And when we think about Russian history and Imperial Russian um, society, uh, it was, of course, most famously captured in Turgenev's uh, novel, uh, Fathers and Sons. So, so it, 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 it's a clearly um, an important theme. Um, World War I is, I think, another watershed moment, or is really a watershed moment when it comes to generations. We see millions of young people being slaughtered on the battlefields of Europe. And that really uh, produces a lot of uh, resentment against the older generations, um, a, a lack in respect for the older generations. And when we think more specifically about the communist movement, or the emerging communist movement, a socialist movement, we, of course, World War I led to the collapse of the Second International, a deep split in the socialist movement. And uh, this deep-rooted... Um, generational conflict allowed then young people in the post-war period really to claim the role as the revolutionary vanguard. And we see that um, in Western and Central Europe. We also see it to some respect in, 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 in Russia, of course. The first program of the Komsomol described young people as the most active and revolutionary part of the working class, the vanguard of the revolution. Um, another example would be um, uh, this feeling of, of generational uh, tension is also captured in um, the memoirs of various young communists from that period. For example, Margaret McCarthy, she was a young British communist. She wrote in her memoir, which is entitled Generational Revolt, uh, so very telling. She wrote um, about those times, um, we felt ourselves intellectually, emotionally, and in activities superior to the party members. We felt ourselves not only leading the youth of the world, but we believed ourselves even leading the party. So there's a really strong sense of, amongst young communists that they are leading the revolution, that they are the vanguard, um, which was also to some extent supported by the rhetoric that they were hearing from the um, leaders the, of, of, the, of the party. And Generation featured very prominently in the, in the political discourse of the time. I mean, Lenin um, said at a Komsomol Congress in 1920, you know, um, those who are 50 years old, they won't see communism. But it's you, you are 15. If you are 15, you will build communism and you will see it. Um, so the interwar period in Europe, I think, really becomes an era of the politics of uh, Generation. As you said, the youth, you know, in the in this the sense of them as a as a, a leading cohort, as a vanguard of social change. Um, but I want to go back to something that you you said before, and that is uh, youth as a problem. 
um, a moral panic, concerns about hooliganism that, that's rampant throughout the, the European continent and into Russia, particularly after 1905. Um, how did modern states uh, understand or European states understand and address this problem of youth? I mean, what we, of course, see in the, in the late 19th century and the early 20th century is the rise of the modern state, the rise of an interventionist state. Um, modernization, urbanization, industrialization really for, you know, pre presented a lot of challenges to the states and they had to become much more interventionist. They started to accumulate a lot of data about the population, about their age, where they lived, their occupation and so on. And we see the expansion of education, of course, in that period, which in many respects institutionalized youth um, because there is new legislation and regulation brought in concerning occupation and education. Um, and at the same time, we see the, the, the emergence of a strong notion that youth is a national asset. Um, this um, is captured uh, very, very famously in, 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 in one uh, uh, quote by a German army colonel who wrote in a book in 1883, the nation's arms, the strength of a nation lies in its youth. And that's a, a thinking that is very dominant in that time. And of course, when we look, uh, for example, at Britain, where there was much anxiety about the uh, growing or the emerging youth working class and whether they were fit to fight the wars to defend the empire, we see the emergence of the uniform movement. Most famously, of course, with the Boy Scouts, which um, were, of course, to some extent, schools for citizenship, but also a preparatory school for the army. Um, and moving forward, when we think about the interwar period, we see, of course, the emergence um, of you know youth systems in the Soviet Union, also under Nazi Germany. In the Soviet Union, we have a whole chain of interlinking socializing agencies to organize the young for from preschool kids and the octobers to pioneers so the school kids and then of course the communist youth league for the teenagers and older youth yeah i want to talk about the communist youth league or the komsomol um in particular and uh, as as many or many might not know that this year is the 100th anniversary of uh, the founding of the Komsomol in the wake of the Russian Revolution in 1918. And, and this series uh, on youth here at Reese is in part uh, inspired by that, that anniversary. So you mentioned the Young Communist League um, in the Soviet Union. What was the Komsomol? Because you spoke about in in the pre-revolutionary period in, in radical socialist movements in Europe and also in Russia, youth were given this, the rhetoric was about youth as a vanguard, the people who will lead the revolution or, or see the, the fulfillment of, say, a socialist or communist society. But the Komsomol was one of many types of youth organizations around in the continent. Uh, you mentioned the Boy Scouts, for example. Uh, of course, you know the Hitler Youth in, in Nazi Germany is another. But also, there's youth organ fascist youth organizations in, in Italy. So, talk about what what was the Komsomol and and how did it compare to these other organizations elsewhere? That's a big question. Yes. Um, I think first of all, one really needs to differentiate when one thinks about youth organizations between organization of and for youth, so organizations that are formed by young people for young people, and those that are essentially created by adults to organize the young. And of course, the Boy Scouts would be an example of the latter. The Komsomol's um, so origins really go back to an autonom autonomous um, youth worker movement that emerged in 1917 um, we, with the collapse of the desirist um, power, um, youth organization mushroomed all over the the, 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 the cities in, in, in Russia and beyond. Um, youth organizations and youth groups were just one of many revolutionary organizations that were formed in, in, in those days. And in some cities like Petrograd, some of these smaller organizations formed bigger organizations in spring 1917 that had several thousand members. And this really um, meant that... Um, young people were forced to be reckoned with in the revolution. Uh, if there are suddenly 30,000, 50,000 uh, young people organized in an organization, and Petrograd it was uh, an organization called Labor and Light, then this is a, a force to be reckoned with. So it really forced the youth question um, 
into or youth question became something that had to be addressed by parties because it didn't exist really before 1970. The Bolshevik were discussing the women's question, but not the youth question. Um, the Komsomol was then established in October 1918, and by that time um, it had about 22,000 members. Um, and the Bolshevik party was, of course, very much involved in it. You know, without the help of the party, those young peoples could have not met for a congress in Moscow and formed the Communist Youth Organization. But I think, and I, and I hope that I have brought that out in my work, I think we, we should really um, acknowledge the agency of young people themselves in that process of creating the, the Komsomol. But of course, the involvement of the, of the party made it um, also the creation of the Komsomol a first step in the creation of what was to become a Soviet civil society a kind of managed civil society. Um, and as such, the Komsomol fulfilled various functions. Um, it was supposed to be a transmission belt between you know, the state and society, helping to integrate a very fragmented population into a um, newly, Soviet, newly structured Soviet society, and thereby, of course, generate support and provide the regime with legitimacy. It was and I think throughout the 1920s, very much an outlet, of course, for youthful activism. You know, those young people that embraced the new, the embraced the revolution and and the new regime, and and were too young to become party members, and thereby allowing, of course, young people to take part in the project of building this new system of their own volition. Um, thirdly, of course it was uh, an, an instrument of political socialization and that became much more important, uh, it came more to the forefront, I think, in the, in the 1930s, even more so than already in the 1920s. Um, it was, of course, the young generation from which the, the new Soviet person was supposed to emerge. And finally, and I think that sets it apart from many other youth organizations, it was, of course, a kind of reserve part, the reserve of the party. It was a Carter school. It was an organization from which the future leaders were supposed to emerge, and of course did. And I think that made the Komsomol really a youth organization of a new type. You know, it was a state-sponsored youth organization. Its ambition was to really organize the youth, all the youth in the country, um, and, uh, and, you know, help mobilizing young people uh, for the project of, of socialist transformation. Now, the Komsomol, um, if my memory is correct, it, it, it reaches about 2 million members by 1928. The, the growth of the organization from the mid-1920s, I think from 1924, it's about a million. And so in a four-year period, it grows really rapidly. So it, it's really absorbing all of these, for the lack of a better term, raw youth. These are youth that they don't know anything about communism. That are, a lot of them are peasants. And, and from wor your work and others, one of the things that occupies a lot of members of this organization in the 1920s is, well, what does it mean to be a young communist? So uh, talk a bit about the, the internal, cu the culture of this organization and how it relates to youth culture in general and, and, and this, this constant debate and, and hand-wringing over what it meant to be a young communist in the mm. 20s. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. To 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 come back to the numbers here, and I think in 1926 the Komsomol had about 1.75 million members, and that was about 5.5 percent of the, you know, the the population in that age group. So it was really still a very small organization. And I really want to emphasize or stress the point that while the Komsomol was one of these new state-sponsored mass organizations. Um, in the 1920s, it was still really a voluntary organization. Nobody was, you know, people voluntarily joined the Komsomol. Of course, there were various reasons why people would join. What it means to be a communist in that time, or what it meant to be a communist, a young communist, I mean, age, I think, really matters. Uh, I think young people engage with, you know, the politics of the revolution at that time, but also if we look beyond uh, the Soviet Union and to other countries uh, in a very passionate, emotional, and very impulsive way. Um, I think that's very clear. And time, place, and context matters. So what it meant to be a young communist probably differed for um, someone in the countryside from someone in the urban context. Um, if we look beyond the Soviet Union, again, in the interwar period, if you were 
joining the Young Communists in Britain in the interwar period. You were essentially joining a sect-like organization. Um, you know, it was a conscious act of isolating yourself even from your, peer, you know, from your peers um, or tiny organizations. In the Soviet Union, this was, of course, very different. It was an organization, the Komsomol was an organization embracing the new regime. Uh, young communists were representing the new regime and the revolution had really empowered them. I mean, every revolution uh, empowers young people because every revolution leads to a breakdown of traditional hierarchy and traditional uh, power structures. Um, and this explains, we talked about this already, why we see this kind of vanguardism in, in, in amongst the young communists. So they really feel that empowerment and they express it. And in the 1920s, of course, we see that particularly with the um, Civil War veterans. You know, the Komsomol played a very important role in the Civil War. Um, and many young communists, for many young communists, this became really a, a shared formative experience that shaped their view about revolution and revolutionary transformation. And in the 1920s then, this very much uh, shaped the culture of the Komsomol. Uh, of you know a, a culture of this uh, civil veterans of revolutionary activism and militancy, um, and in the 1920s, one has to uh, acknowledge that the Komsomol was still in many places really providing an autonomous space for young people to enact their own ideas about revolution. Um, in the in the countryside, uh, in many places, the Komsomol was the only representative of Soviet power. It was assuming you know, state functions. Uh, it was the face of the party. And we see much debate in the 1920s about what it meant to be a communist, about behavior, about dress, um, about uh, uh, things like um, smoking, language, um, drinking. And what young people in the Komsomol often thought was distinctly communist and revolutionary, an expression of their their loyalty to the ideals of the revolution was now seen by the regime as something that was uh, a sign of, you know, the uh, collapse of morality and, and and so on. I mean, we see at the Komsomol Congress, just to give you one example, uh, I think Bukharin giving a speech about, um, you know, that young communists shouldn't smoke any longer, um, live a healthy uh, life, and and from the floor, one of the delegates shouts, you know, you will. All turn, you will turn us all into sissies. Um, so this this first generation of uh, Komsomol members really expressed their views of revolution um, through fashion, through language, through behavior. Um, it was very trendy to wear, you know, military clothes in the, in the 1920s, and 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 really expressed their loyalty to the proletarian roots um, of, the, of the revolution. You mentioned this uh, really funny moment of Bukharin, um, you know, imploring youth to not smoke, and there is all sorts of anti-drinking campaigns. Um, in a sense, in, in, in the mid-20s too, along with this, you get uh, the emergence of the Komsomol as, a, as a beginning to be a mass organization. You have a moral panic as well. Um, so how did the how was a moral panic dealt with in the Soviet context in the mid to late 1920s amongst communist youth, but also youth in general? Well, yeah, there were there were all kinds of uh, concerns about uh, behavior of, of the younger generation. Um, and of course, we have um, a lot of campaigns in, in, in 1920s you know, against drunkenness, campaigns to adopt the new norms and values. Um, against prostitution, uh, to overcome illiteracy. And the Komsomol, of course, became one of the main instruments to, to implement those campaigns. And they, they of course, uh, work in, in, in various ways. On the one hand, if you send out Komsomol members telling others to how to behave, they're, of course, also um, you know, fashioning themselves. Um, and depending really on the message of some of those campaigns, it was more or less successful. Uh, as I mentioned already, you know, some of the, the things that Komsomol members thought were distinctly communist uh, were seen by the regime um, as, as, as uh, you know, unwanted um, and, and, and juvenile delinquency and, and, and deviance. So we see um, campaigns, of course, against drunkenness, uh, but 
drunkenness prevailed in the Comsom Mall. There's a lot of um, um, material um, in the archives that really highlights that many of these, um, what the regime um, wanted, many of these things that the regime wanted to overcome are very much present in the Comsom Mall. And of course we see um, a number of, we see quite a lot of expulsions mm -hmm. uh, of Comsom Mall members. Um, and uh, people also leaving the Komsomol because they don't want to abide by these rules. Um, yeah, so it's it, the 1920s really becomes a period where we see this kind of struggle over cultural definitions. Um, but I would say that the Komsomol, because it really still provided this space for young people to um, you know enact their own ideas about what it was to be communist. Um, allowed them to often to challenge authority, including political authority. Now, when you were speaking, um, I, I thought of another issue that I think really needs to be addressed, and that is the fact that the Komsomol is primarily a male space, right? The, especially if you look at the fashion of the time, the, the, the playing to this revolutionary ethos, the leather jackets, the jack boots, and the fact that the organization itself, I think is probably what, 75% young male. So how did young women figure into this organization? How, how did it, what did they, when a, when a young woman, a 16 year old girl or a, a teenage girl joins this organization, what did they find? That's a good question. Um, I think you know the, the the gender issue is 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 a really important one. I'll go back to one of your original questions. We're talking about the the conceptions of youth and how youth become uh, you know an identifiable social group. Actually, we don't until not before the 20th century we see gender inclusive conceptions of youth actually emerging. Uh, we usually to in the late 19th century when they talk about youth, they talk about male youth. Um, the Komsomol culture in the 1920s was a very masculine affair um, and uh, some you know female members actually embraced it and that was discussed in the comms more press and was not seen actually as a as a thing that that should be happening um, female members uh, the 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 membership you know gradually increased but it's it stayed at around 20 percent i think in the 1920s it was only really in the 1930s i think that more young uh, female members joined uh, the the, the Komsomol. and i think this um again is a is a wider this this is can be explained by the broader shift that we see in the 1930s also actually in in other U communist youth organizations in Europe, which is more emphasis on socialization, more emphasis on recreational activities and toning down this masculine, very masculine uh, milit militant culture that really characterized the, the, the Komsomol 1920s. But of course there were, you know, female members in the Komsomol um, and um, they not, they often um, had a very tough time because the culture was very masculine and uh, uh, they were underrepresented um, of course in in the in the leading organs of of, of the comms mall it really only changed in the in, in the 1930s i would say you know we, we talked earlier about this question of of what does it mean to be a young communist and one of the things you you mentioned is that there are a lot of expulsions um so how did the Komsomol regulate itself internally? How did it discipline members? How did it, you know, adjudicate behavior? And and what could get somebody thrown out? Well, again, that depends probably very much on time and place. Um, there, you know, this was fast-moving times, and uh, and uh, I mentioned the kind of battle over cultural definitions and norms and values and what was supposed to be communist and what wasn't. Um, and there's, that shifted at times um, some behavior that was seen to be uncommunist, you know, engaging in drunkenness and so on could lead to straight straight away to expulsions in, in, in certain times and in other times this was overlooked. But in terms of the mechanisms, I mean, there were clearly codes of conduct and um, they were very um, passionately discussed in, 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 in Komsomol meetings in the 1920s. Um, we see already, you know, 
a whole range of um, practices emerging that would later characterize, I think, Stalinist society and Stalinist culture. So we have those um, Komsomol meetings where people engage in criticism and self-criticism. Um, and of course, kind of disciplining um, uh, uh, instrument. Um, we see even show trials, um, many show trials in, in, in the 1920s. And yeah, we see waves of expulsions, really huge numbers of, 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 of Komsomol members that uh, are expelled from the league for engaging in all kinds of behavior um, that is not deemed to be acceptable um, in, in, in the 1920s. Um, but it really comes also in waves because of course the, um, as the Komsomol leadership collects also a lot of data on what is happening in the local and regional organizations, they become very concerned about um, how these expulsions are enforced. Um, is it the right way to do that? Um, should we push you know, we should. The, the, the ambition is to organize all youth and to use the Komsomol as an instrument of political socialization. So, are we pushing young people away if we if we expel them, and are we actually turning them into you know anti-Soviet elements? Uh, I'm going to jump in and, and provide an answer too because I did some work on this. The Komsomol, um, beginning in 1925, and and this is really critical because it's also uh, a point in which the numbers of members are increasing really rapidly. And in 1925, they actually create um, something called the Conflict Commission, which is essentially moral courts. And if you are uh, someone who vi and the problem is, is that the rules aren't written down. There isn't, so take for example, drunkenness. There's lots of debates in the 1920s about drinking. Should Komsomols drink? How much did they drink? But they they can they never really say how much is too much, and they don't say you can't drink because if you say you can't drink, they're gonna lose. You know, so everybody's gonna be like, screw this place. So what they do is they create a juridical structure, and members who are deemed as you know. Um, from anyone who drinks too much, who sexually harasses, or in some cases assaults girls, who steals, form hooliganism, all of this stuff, they're brought before a panel at the local level. So your cell, you know, Mateus and I and Max could be the, the adjudicating judges. Uh, we bring one of you uh, forward. You, we say these are the charges. You know, we got a letter from someone saying that you're involved, or somebody, one of your comrades saw you doing this or that. And then you have to stand up and basically try to explain yourself. And then sometimes witnesses are pulled in if it's a very grave offense. And, uh, and what's interesting about this process is that a lot of times the judgment, they, as Mateus said, they don't necessarily want to kick people out all the time because they also understand that, well, you know, young people are kind of, the youth, young people are young people, right? So we'll reprimand you. And they, they tend to kick out if there's multiple offenses or if the offense is really grave. But what's also interesting is that you can appeal and you can appeal your expulsion and that goes up to a next level in the structure. Uh, so like at a city level and a lot of people are let back in. So it's it's actually in, in, in my work on this on this adjudication, I argue that in this court setting is where you get the parameters of what I called acceptable behavior worked out. Because when you expel someone for like, you know, uh, Ivan Ivanovich is like drinking all the time, you know, stealing his mother's money and buying alcohol, which was a common thing. If you kick them out for that, that sets the law. You set that, that is a violation. And that communicates back to the cell or the organization that that's a line you can't cross. So in this hectic period of the 1920s, where what it means to be a young communist is completely fluid, the adjudication process is one way to establish the, at least the borders or the parameters of what being a young communist means. Now, one of the things that's striking about this, the Stalin revolution in the early late 1920s and early 1930s is how youth and youth activism is really on the forefront. I mean, here you have them playing a particularly vanguard role 
in uh, in the Stalin revolution. So talk about some of the activism and the role of youth and the place of them in this massive drive to transform uh, Soviet society. Well, I mean, first of all, one has to say really a disclaimer um, that, you know, the Komsomol is not a monolithic entity. And there was, while the, the youth, and I will talk about this, played an immense role in Stalin's revolution, Stalin's revolution, the revolution above, also split Komsomol to Komsomol. You know, the, it turned often urban Komsomol members against rural Komsomol members. The hundreds of thousands of rural Komsomol members left the organization during uh, the collectivization drive. But of course, the, the role of young people in Stalin's revolution is as well as established. But the, the enthusiasm was not unlimited. But what we see really, what I would argue is that the, it was the new economic policy, so the 1920s, that created this constituency for the aggressive populist message of Stalin's revolution. Um, young people did not initiate that revolution, but when it started, they threw themselves readily into it. And we really see kind of a, a reservoir of pent-up desire by the mid and 1920s within the Komsomol to, you know, renew um, the, the the revolutionary project, to, to embark on a socialist offensive. Um, and like the revolution of 1917, Stalin's revolution once again empowered young people because it assigned them a crucial role in that process. Um, it led to a breakdown of traditional hierarchies. We have, you know, Stalinist promoted the interest of young workers in the factories and construction sites. You know, they, they mobilized them through um, shock worker groups, uh, which were not necessarily seen uh, uh, in a very favorable light by the older workers. They created um, small groups um, called light, light uh, cavalry, um, small groups of workers that would, you know, go on to in, into in, uh, inspect factories for uh, inefficiencies, for corruption, and of course, thereby challenge adult authority. So young people were really, I think, very much the fuel of uh, the, the socialist offensive. In the thousands, they were the people that moved uh, from the countryside to the big construction sites in the countries. Young people were also, a Komsomol member was, were of course also involved in the collectivization and grain collection campaigns. Um, and Lev Kopelev, uh, in his memoir, Education of a True Believer, writes about it uh, very vividly. Um, and also about how this time becomes a test for Komsomol members. But there's one thing, they all want to claim their own revolutionary experience. You know, this is the second generation of Komsomol members now, those that didn't fight in the civil war. But, you know, the day-to-day -day life on a construction site, like in Magnitogorsk, you know, living in tents in, in really appalling conditions, or going out on a grain collection campaign um, and witnessing the, the anguish uh, is not necessarily a nice thing. And, and Kopolev reflects on this, and, but he, he, he shows how he, he kind of convinces himself that this is a historical necessity. It's his revolutionary duty to go through with this. And what we have to consider here is, of course, that at the very same time where the Soviet Union pushed forward and, and, and moved forward in this socialist offensive, you know, the rest of the world sunk into depression. So this really validated and affirmed um, uh, many young people's views that, you know, this was the right way forward. How effective was organizations like the Boy Scouts and the Komsomol in, in, in shaping youth and their attitudes and behaviors, in your estimation? Um, well, I mean, we all know that the Soviet Union collapsed in the end. Um, so if the idea was to, you know, create this interlinking agency, socializing agency to produce loyal supporters of the regime, then clearly something must have gone wrong. Um, if we look in the 1980s and we look at attitudes, youth attitudes towards the regime, and I think that applies more widely to communist youth organizations across Eastern Europe, we will see, I think we see four distinct groups. We see a small group of, of course, loyal supporters that really embrace the ideology of the regime. Many of them want to make career for the youth organization, but of course we have to consider that, uh, you know, charism, opportunism, and firm belief in the ideology are not mutually uh, exclusive. We see 
a small group again of young people who opt out. I mean, every single subculture that we see in Western Europe, we also will find in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. We see punks, we see skinheads, um, and they really, you know, disengage um, completely. Um, then we see, of course, and that's the vast majority. I think the vast majority in the 1980s of Komsomol members, and Komsomol had about 40 million members at the start of the, uh, the, the 1980s, were apathetic conformists. They were engaging with the regime to a certain level because a certain amount of engagement with the regime was non-negotiable unless you wanted to have real disadvantages in your life. Um, and by engaging with the regime at a certain level, they... They, 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 they also reap the benefits that came with it. Um, of course, access to education was very much controlled for the youth organizations. Uh, I myself grew up in East Germany and I was a young pioneer and I was about to enter the communist youth organization when the wall came down. But it was very clear that if you if you're not joining the young communist, you're taking a stand and that would have meant that you in all likelihood would have not been able to go to university. So this kind of minimum engagement with the regime was non-negotiable. And then the fourth group that we have is we have a small group of active um, uh, active um, protesters or uh, people who really are in the opposition. Um, and the interesting thing with, those, with, with them is that many of them started off as loyal supporters of the regime, but they of course notice the growing, or the growing, the, the, the really immense gap between the rhetoric and the reality in the 1970s and 1980s. And they call out the regime using the language of the regime, using actually, you know, Marxist theory. And we see um, the influence, of course, also of the rise of the new left in Western Europe. Uh, those ideas make it into, into, the, into the East. And um, I think the... Um, communist regimes make a huge mistake in 1968 where they lose a lot of young intellectuals um, that are seeking reform of this regime but um, it becomes very clear that a reform from the inside is not possible so i mean what one of the things you've, you've talked about today is that uh young people and their vanguard status are, are seen as a as a break, right? They're used to break with tradition, right? Break with history, you know, build the new society. It's very future oriented. But at the same time, you also have elements which you, you know, these societies in, in the communist systems in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, and particularly in the into the post-war period in the 60s and 70s, you have uh, also another trend of that of memory of of trying to connect back to uh, a, a larger past for the nation to to almost naturalize the communist system in a long trajectory of of historical development so how did things like memory and and harking back to the the folk elements of the eastern europe and the soviet union function um it's a very good question um i i think um you're absolutely right. When we think, um, you know, initially we have all this vanguardism. Um, and of course, the in the terms of the, the, the socialist um, view of youth and how they want to, how they create this youth organization's interlinking chain of socializing agencies is supposed to um, actually produce generational accord rather than conflict. Um, in the interwar period, that clearly doesn't work at all um, because really it comes to the political generation. And in fact, of course, creating those distinct organization, uh, organizations generationalized the communist movement. You know, you have youth, you have child, children, youth, and then adult. Um, I think we, we see in the, in the post-war period, of course, in these organizations, and also from my own experience, I can only say um, as, as a young pioneer in, in, in East Germany, uh, clearly that there is this um, trend. And, and um, um, I think it's, it's, it, it's part of, of course, an attempt of these um, countries to um, produce a coherent narrative you know, national narrative. Um, and um, also adopting, of course, some of these um, 
you know, activities and um, um, ideas of uh, folk culture and so that are very much present in other children's organizations. I mean, the young pioneers, when we think about them, they adopt an awful lot from the Boy Scouts. And what I haven't mentioned before is, um, and I think this is important to note, um, because it's a widespread misperception, the Bolsheviks come to power and he, they create a very closed communist youth system. Octoberists for preschool children, pioneers and Komsomol. Well, the Komsomol was the first one. After that came the pioneers and after that came the, the, the Octoberists. So it almost emerges in reverse and it emerges in reverse largely. I mean, the Bolshevik party is largely reactive here because the Boy Scouts are still very popular in Russia, even after the revolution. And they, they cannot just close down those organizations. They have to replace it with something. Um, and that's what they're doing. Um, but then um, to come back to your your question, I think it's, uh, yeah, I think these organizations, of course, become um, very important for those countries to produce a coherent national narrative and the feeling of um, what we say, call in German Heimat um, and, uh, you know, a sense of belonging and, 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 and really, um, yeah, also patriotism for, you know, their respective um, country. And finally, taking all of this, the, the, these early years of youth politics, um, you know, in Europe, but also in the Soviet Union, how does this period shape our understanding of youth well into the 20th century? I would say it, it it plays a huge role in our understanding of, of youth, um, but also actually misunderstandings of youth. <laughs> um, I would say three things here. I mean, when we think about the um, this paradigm of troublemakers or the troubled, and you know the the famous storm and stress theory to see youth, this is although the storm and stress theory is not supported by modern educational theory or pedagogical theory. It's still very much how youth is looked at. Um, you know, it's a time in the, in, the, in the life course between childhood and adulthood where young people can be potentially troublemakers um, or are kind of, you know, suffering from from being in this in the in that period in their life are being troubled are troubled. Um, on on that note, um, I would say that gender comes actually again into it you know when we look at the 19th century and early 20th century it's usually you know all young male working class youth would seen as potentially dangerous and troublemakers whereas um a female um uh, youth would usually be seen as you know they're going through a difficult period in their life they are troubled um secondly i would say that of course, the interwar period, and I talked, we talked a little bit about the politics of generation, I think really cemented uh, the, the notion that young people are, can be a radical uh, agent um, in, 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 in history. And, you know, all big parties these days have youth wings. They all have youth organizations. They try to harness and to channel this youthful activism uh, and enthusiasm um, uh, for... Uh, for, for their political purposes. Um, and our contemporary view is actually this kind of radical, the, the fact that young people are radical force in history is of was very much affirmed by, um, or is very much shaped by the 1968, you know, if global event of 1968, students rebellion, Vietnam protests and so on. And finally, I, I mentioned misunderstandings and misperceptions. And I think when we look at the Soviet Union, but also other, you know, authoritarian regimes that emerge in the interwar period with totalizing aspirations, then our view of um, youth under these systems is still very much shaped by images of uniformed, brainwashed, indoctrinated Hitler youth members marching in Nuremberg. Um, and that uh, this view about the Hitler youth is usually um, very similar to the one, you know, what, what people think about youth under communism. Um, so, and of course, um, as we just talked about, um, but I think as a wealth of research has shown, you know, young people maintain their agency under these regimes. They often challenged political authority and even within those organizations that had the ambition to organize the young, of course, that had the ambition to enforce conformity 
and discipline and raise loyal supporters for those regimes. Even in those organizations, we see a whole range of non-conform behavior, even dissidents. And you know, I would hope that uh, this series, um, which uh, we, we're starting today, will hopefully you know, challenge some of these misperceptions. That was Matthias Neumann, a senior lecturer in modern Russian history at the University of East Anglia. He has published widely on the history of childhood and youth in revolutionary Russia. He's the author of The Communist Youth League and the Transformation of the Soviet Union, 1917 to 1932, published by Rutledge. The book has also been translated into Spanish and will be, and will be published in South America in 2019. He's also the co-editor of Rethinking the Russian Revolution as Historical Divide, Tradition, Rupture, and Modernity, published by Rushledge. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. Stay you, for you are him.